0: Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep. Here at the cabin in the wilds of Northern California, it's starting to get a bit chilly. The leaves are falling, and the frost won't be far behind. Perfect for a story that's just a little creepy, but very sleepy. I'm going to finish up The Amputated Arms by Danish author Jorgen Wilhelm Bergso. Part one was in episode 15 last week, if you missed it. If you want to read the story yourself, it's available online for free. Check the show notes for the episode at www.listentosleep.com for a link to download it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider showing your support by subscribing to it and writing a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help. If you haven't noticed, podcast listings can be like a cable TV menu from hell. Ratings help separate out the ones you want to hear from the ones you don't, so we can all help the next person out by rating the podcasts that we listen to. You can also link to it or share it on social media, or tell a friend. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Listen to Sleep. And now, part two of The Amputated Arms by Jorgen Wilhelm Bergso. "'Why, all the devils!' exclaimed Soling in anatomical enthusiasm. "'Where did you find that superb arm? "'Simpson knows what he's about, all right. "'It's a girl's arm, isn't it beautiful? "'Just look at the hand, how fine and delicate it is. "'Must have worn a number six glove. "'There's a pretty hand to caress and kiss.' the arm passed from one to the other amid general admiration. Every word that was said increased my disgust for myself and for what I had done. It was a woman's arm then. What sort of woman might she have been? Young and beautiful, possibly, her brother's pride, her parents' joy. She had faded away in her youth, "'cared for by loving hands and tender thoughts. "'She had fallen asleep gently, "'and those who loved her had desired to give her in death "'the peace she had enjoyed throughout her lifetime. "'For this they had made her coffin of thick, heavy oaken boards, "'and this hand, loved and missed by so many, "'it lay there now on an anatomical table.' encircled by clouds of tobacco smoke, stared at by curious glances, and made the object of coarse jokes. Oh God, how terrible it was. I must have that arm, exclaimed Soling, when the first burst of admiration had passed. When I bleach it and touch it up with varnish, it will be a superb specimen. I'll take it home with me. No, I exclaimed, I can't permit it. It was wrong of me to bring it away from the churchyard. I'm going right back to put the arm in its place. Well, will you listen to that, cried Soling, amid the hearty laughter of the others. Simpson's so lyric, he certainly must be drunk. I must have that arm at any cost. Not much, cut in Niels Dye. You have no right to it. It was buried in the earth and dug out again. It is a find, and all the rest of us have just as much right to it as you have. Yes, every one of us has some share in it, said someone else. But what are you going to do about it, remarked Soling. It would be vandalism to break up that arm. What God has joined together let no man put asunder he concluded with pathos let's auction it off exclaimed day i will be the auctioneer and this key to the graveyard will serve me for a hammer the laughter broke out anew as day took his place solemnly at the head of the table and began to whine out the following announcement i hereby notify all present that on the 25th of november at 12 o'clock at midnight in corridor number 5 of the student barracks a lady's arm in excellent condition with all its appurtenances of wrist bones joints and fingertips is to be offered at public auction the buyer can have possession of his purchase immediately after the auction and a credit of 6 weeks will be given to any reliable customer i bid a danish shilling one mark cried soling mockingly Two, cried somebody else. Four, exclaimed Soling. It's worth it. Why don't you join in, Simpson? You look as if you were sitting in a hornet's nest. I bid one mark more, and Soling raised me a thaler. There were no more bids. The hammer fell, and the arm belonged to Soling. Here, take this, he said, handing me a mark piece. It's part of your commission as a grave robber. You shall have the rest later, unless you prefer that I should turn it over to the drinking fund. With these words, Soling wrapped the arm in newspaper, and the gay crowd ran noisily down the stairs and through the streets, until their singing and laughter were lost in the distance. I stood alone, still dazed and bewildered, staring at the piece of money in my hand. My thoughts were far too much excited that I should hope to sleep. I turned up my lamp and took out one of my books to try and study myself into a quieter mood, but without success. Suddenly, I heard a sound like that of a swinging pendulum. I raised my head and listened attentively. There was no clock either in my room or in the neighboring ones, but I could still hear the sound. At the same moment, my lamp began to flicker. The oil was apparently exhausted. I was about to rise to fill it again when my eyes fell upon the door and I saw the graveyard key, which I had hung there, moving slowly back and forth with a rhythmic swing. Just as its motion seemed about to die away, It would receive a gentle push as from an unseen hand and would swing back and forth more than ever. I stood there with open mouth and staring eyes. Ice-cold chills ran down my back and drops of perspiration stood out on my forehead. Finally, I could endure it no longer. I sprang to the door, seized the key with both hands, and put it on my desk under a pile of heavy books. Then I breathed a sigh of relief. My lamp was about to go out, and I discovered that I had no more oil. With feverish haste, I threw my clothes off, blew out the light, and sprang into bed as if to smother my fears. But once alone in the darkness... The fears grew worse than ever. They grew into dreams and visions. It seemed to me as if I were out in the graveyard again and heard the screaming of the rusty weather vane as the wind turned it. Then I was in the mill again. The wheels were turning and stretching out ghostly hands to draw me into the yawning maw of the machine. Then again I found myself in a long, long, low, pitch-black corridor, followed by something I could not see, something that drove me to the mouth of the bottomless abyss. I would start up out of my half-sleep, listen and look about me, then fall back again into an uneasy slumber. Suddenly, something fell from the ceiling onto the bed, and buzz, buzz buzz sounded about my head. It was a huge fly, which had been sleeping in a corner of my room and had been roused by the heat of the stove. It flew about in great circles, now around the bed, now in all four corners of the chamber. bzz. bzz, bzz. It was unendurable. At last, I heard it creep into a bag of sugar which had been left on the windowsill. I sprang up and closed the bag tight. The fly buzzed worse than ever, but I went back to bed and attempted to sleep again, feeling that I had conquered the enemy. I began to count. I counted slowly to one hundred. Two hundred. Finally up to one thousand and then at last I experienced that pleasant weakness which is the forerunner of true sleep. I seemed to be in a beautiful garden, bright with many flowers and odorous with all the perfumes of spring. At my side walked a beautiful young girl. I seemed to know her well, and yet it was not possible for me to remember her name, or even to know how we came to be wandering there together. As we walked slowly through the paths, she would stop to pick a flower or to admire a brilliant butterfly swaying in the air. Suddenly, a cold wind blew through the garden. The young girl trembled, and her cheeks grew pale. I am cold, she said to me. Do you not see? It is death who is approaching us. I would have answered, but in the same moment, another stronger and still more icy gust roared through the garden. The leaves turned pale on the trees, the flowerets bent their heads, and the bees and butterflies fell lifeless to the earth. That is death, whispered my companion, trembling. A third icy gust blew the last leaves from the bushes. White crosses and gravestones appeared between the bare twigs. And I was in the churchyard again and heard the screaming of the rusty weather vane. Beside me stood a heavy brass-bound coffin with a metal plate on the cover. I bent down to read the inscription, The cover rolled off suddenly, and from out of the coffin rose the form of the young girl who had been with me in the garden. I stretched out my arms to clasp her to my breast. Then, oh horror, I saw the greenish gleaming empty eye sockets of the skull. I felt bony arms around me, dragging me back into the coffin. I screamed aloud for help and woke up. My room seemed unusually light, but I remembered that it was a moonlight night and thought no more of it. I tried to explain the visions of my dream with various natural noises about me. The imprisoned fly buzzed as loudly as a whole swarm of bees. One half of my window had blown open, and the cold night air rushed in gusts into my room. I sprang up to close the window, and then I saw that the strong white light that filled my room did not come from the moon, but it seemed to shine out from the church opposite. I heard the chiming of the bells, soft at first, as if in far distance, then stronger and stronger until, mingled with the rolling notes of the organ, a mighty rush of sound struck against my windows. I stared out into the street and could scarcely believe my eyes. The houses in the marketplace just beyond were all little one-story buildings with bow windows and wooden eave troughs ending in carved dragon heads. Most of them had balconies of carved woodwork and high stone stoops with gleaming brass rails. But it was the church, most of all, that aroused my astonishment. Its position was completely changed. Its front turned toward our house where usually the side had stood. The church was brilliantly lighted, and now I perceived that it was this light which filled my room, I stood speechless amid the chiming of the bells and the roaring of the organ, and I saw a long wedding procession moving slowly up the center aisle of the church toward the altar. The light was so brilliant that I could distinguish each one of the figures. They were all in strange old-time costumes, the ladies in brocades and satins with strings of pearls in their powdered hair, the gentlemen in uniform with knee breeches, swords, and cocked hats held under their arms. But it was the bride who drew my attention most strongly. She was clothed in white satin, and a faded myrtle wreath was twisted through the powdered locks beneath her sweeping veil. The bridegroom at her side wore a red uniform and many decorations. Slowly they approached the altar, where an old man in black vestments and a heavy white wig was awaiting them. They stood before him, and I could see that he was reading the ritual from a gold-lettered book. One of the trains stepped forward and unbuckled the bridegroom's sword that his right hand might be freed to take that of the bride. She seemed about to raise her own hand to his, when she suddenly sank, fainting at his feet. The guests hurried toward the altar, the lights went out, the music stopped, and the figures floated together like pale white mists. But outside in the square, it was still brighter than before, and I suddenly saw the side portal of the church burst open and the wedding procession move out across the marketplace. I turned as if to flee, but could not move a muscle. Quiet, as if turned to stone, I stood and watched the ghostly figures that came nearer and nearer. The clergyman led the train. Then came the bridegroom and the bride. And as the latter raised her eyes to me, I saw that it was the young girl of the garden. Her eyes were so full of pain, so full of sad entreaty, that I could scarce endure them. But how shall I explain the feeling that shot through me as I suddenly discovered that the right sleeve of her white satin gown hung empty at her side? The train disappeared, and the tone of the church bells changed to a strange, dry, creaking sound, and the gate below me complained as it turned on its rusty hinges. I faced toward my own door. I knew that it was shut and locked, but I knew that the ghostly procession were coming to call me to account, and I felt that no walls could keep them out. My door flew open. There was a rustling of silken gowns, but the figures seemed to float in the changing forms of swaying white mists. Closer and closer they gathered around me, robbing me of breath, robbing me of the power to move. There was a silence, as of the grave, and then I saw before me the old priest with his gold-lettered book. He raised his hands and spoke with a soft, deep voice. The grave is sacred. Let no one dare disturb the peace of the dead. The grave is sacred. An echo rolled through the room as the swaying figures moved like reeds in the wind. "'What do you want? What do you demand?' I gasped in the grip of a deathly fear. "'Give back to the grave that which belongs to it,' repeated the echo as the swaying forms pressed closer to me. "'But it's impossible. I can't. I have sold it, sold it at auction,' I screamed in despair.' "'It was buried and found in the earth "'and sold for five marks eight shillings. "'A hideous scream came from the ghostly ranks. "'They threw themselves upon me "'as the white fog rolls in from the sea. "'They pressed upon me until I could no longer breathe.' Beside myself, I threw open the window and attempted to spring out, screaming aloud, Help! Help! Murder! They are murdering me! The sound of my own voice awoke me. I found myself in my nightclothes on the windowsill, one leg already out of the window and both hands clutching at the center post. On the street below me stood the night watchman, staring up at me in astonishment, while faint white clouds of mist rolled out of my window like smoke. All around outside lay the November fog, gray and moist, and as the fresh air of the early dawn blew cool on my face, I felt my senses returning to me. I looked down at the night watchman, God bless him, he was a big strong comfortably fat fellow made of real flesh and blood and no ghost shape of the night. I looked at the round tower of the church. How massive and venerable it stood there, grey in the grey of the morning mists. I looked over at the market place. There was a light in the baker's shop, and a farmer stood before it. Tying his horse to a post. Back in my own room, everything was in its usual place. Even the little paper bag with the sugar lay there on the window sill, and the imprisoned fly buzzed louder than ever. I knew that I was really awake and that the day was coming. I sprang back hastily from the window and was about to jump into bed when my foot touched something hard and sharp. I stooped to see what it was, felt about on the floor in the half-light, and touched a long, dry skeleton arm, which held a tiny roll of paper in its bony fingers. I felt about again and found still another arm, also holding a roll of paper. Then I began to think that my reason must be going. What I had seen this far was only an unusually vivid dream, "'a vision of my heated imagination. "'But I knew that I was awake now. "'And yet here lay two, no, three, "'for there was still another arm, "'hard, undeniable, material proofs "'that what I had thought was hallucination "'might have been reality. "'Trembling in the thought that madness was threatening me, "'I tore open the first roll of paper.' On it was written the name Soling. I caught at the second and opened it. There stood the word Nansen. I had just strength enough left to catch the third paper and open it. There was my own name, Simpson. Then I sank fainting to the floor. When I came to myself again, Niels dye stood beside me with an empty water bottle, the contents of which were dripping off my person and off the sofa upon which I was lying. Here, drink this, he said, in a soothing tone. It will make you feel better. I looked about me wildly as I sipped at the glass of brandy which put new life into me once more. What has happened? I asked weakly. Oh, nothing of importance, answered Niels. You were just about to commit suicide by means of charcoal gas. Those are mighty bad ventilators on your old stove there. The wind must have blown them shut unless you were fool enough to close them yourself before you went to bed. If you had not opened the window, you would already have been too far along the path to paradise to be called back by a glass of brandy. "'Pick another.' "'How did you get up here?' I asked, sitting upright on the sofa. "'Through the door, in the usual, simple manner,' answered Niels Dye. "'I was on watch last night in the hospital, but matthias's punch is heavy, "'and my watching was more like sleeping, "'so I thought it better to come away in the early morning.' As I passed your barracks here, I saw you sitting in the window in your nightshirt and calling down to the night watchman that someone was murdering you. I managed to wake up Jansen down below you and got into the house through his window. Do you usually sleep on the bare floor? But where did the arms come from, I asked, still half bewildered. "'Oh, the devil, take those arms!' cried Niels. "'Just see if you can stand up all right now. "'Oh, those arms there, why, those are the arms I cut off your skeletons. "'Clever idea, wasn't it? "'You know how grumpy Soling gets if anything interferes with his tutoring. "'You see, I'd had the geese sent me, "'and I wanted you all to come with me to Matiasen's place.' I knew you were going to read the osteology of the arm, so I went up into Soling's room, opened it with his own keys, and took the arms from his skeleton. I did the same here while you were downstairs in the reading room. Have you been stupid enough to take them down off their frames and take away their tickets? I had marked them so carefully that each man should get his own again. I dressed hastily and went out with Niels into the fresh, cool morning air. A few minutes later, we separated, and I turned towards the street where Soling lived. Without heeding the protest of his old landlady, I entered the room where he still slept the sleep of the just. The arm, still wrapped in newspaper, lay on his desk. I took it up, put the mark piece in its place, and hastened with all speed to the churchyard. How different it looked in the early dawn. The fog had risen and shining frost pearls hung in the bare twigs of the tall trees where the sparrows were already twittering their morning song. There was no one to be seen. The churchyard lay quiet and peaceful. I stepped over the heaps of bones to where the heavy oaken coffin lay under a tree. Cautiously, I pushed the arm back into its interior and hammered the rusty nails into their places again, just as the first rays of the pale November sun touched a gleam of light from the metal plate on the cover. Then the weight was lifted from my soul.